a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If this is your first time around, first of all, I congratulate you on having the courage to tune in. Right? No, it takes it takes guts to challenge the status quo or at least to challenge the narrative. What I hope you find as you listen to this program is thoughtful, informative commentary and interviews for people who delight in thinking for themselves. And if that's you, hopefully you feel right at home. I uh, do this uh, Monday through Friday, a couple of hours each day. And uh, I, I kind of look at uh, my job as not so much setting myself up as, uh, you know, to be uh, uh, rich and famous. In fact, I have a very, very carefully executed plan to avoid fame and fortune. And so far, it's working really, really well. Um, no, I'm here to distribute uh, precision-guided truth bombs while disarming dangerous myths and encouraging you to be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply, you know, absolutely certain of who or what you're against. It's a subtle difference, but it's one that hopefully helps us see the world more clearly and helps us to recognize those places where we can step up in our circle of influence and make the difference we were born to make. Lofty ideals, right? Well, pull up a chair and let's, let's dive right in. I do want to mention I have a number of great sponsors. I would love for you to check them out for yourself. And whether you, if you need their product or their service, by all means, I would ask you, please avail yourself of, of their services and, and let them know that their message reached you. Even if you don't at this moment, maybe send them a little bit of love as far as, uh, you know, an email or just drop a message saying, I heard Brian talking about you. Great to hear that you're sponsoring his program. You can find them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I want to start with a quote from Theodore Dalrymple. Now, that's not somebody everybody's quoting around the dinner table, but I thought this was a really interesting note to begin on. The quote says, In my study of communist societies, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince, not to inform, but to humiliate. And therefore, the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. To assent to obvious lies is, in some small way, to become evil oneself. One standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. A society of emasculated liars is easy to control. I think if you examine political correctness, it has the same effect and is intended to. End quote. Wow. <laughs> Does that not sound like what well, we've been uh, force-fed here for a while? Especially political correctness. You cannot think this. You may not look at that. You may not name this, that. or I mean, just everything that came before it was wrong. It all has to be undone. It all has to be reordered. And yes, you must look to me, the social justice warrior, now elevated to the status of general, <laughs> to, to tell you what it's safe to think. That sounds a lot like weaponized guilt. That sounds a lot like manipulation, and it's unfortunately something that has permeated most of the institutions in our society. 
By the way, if you want to see the institutions that haven't been uh, thoroughly uh, brought to, to their knees by political correctness, by cultural Marxism, all you have to do is look at the ones that are most under attack. Let's see, that would be the family. To some degree, churches, although there are a lot of churches that have, um, they've, they've knuckled under. They actually are going the politically correct route. Won't get much into that, but uh, gosh, what else does that leave? Not much. Other institutions like media, academia, business, what else? Government, yes, <laughs> that's that's a big one, um, and I guess community could could you know arguably be one of those that's under attack right now as well. Bottom line is, we've got to do a lot of uh, we got to put in some serious effort if we're going to think through and not just follow along with the herd, and uh, if we're if we're going to actually you know own our worldview. So I thought I would start today with what's on a lot of people's minds, and that, of course, is the Omicron variant. Oh, my goodness. The memo went out over the weekend, and um, it's sad to see. You know, I, I, my daughter lives in Germany, and my wife got word from her yesterday. Well, we had to, we had to go and, you know, see the Christmas market while we can because it looks like uh, Germany's getting ready to lock everything down, just like Austria has and like other places throughout Europe have. Scary, scary stuff. Not because of the virus, though. I, and, and this is, uh, I feel like I'm walking this fine line here between, you know, the, the COVID virus is real. I think most of us know someone who's either died from it or has been severely sickened by it. But it's not the death threat to the majority of the population that we're sometimes expected to believe that it is or expected to behave as if it is. I mean, this is this is the reason why, you know, no matter how many mask mandates, no matter how strict the lockdowns, things still keep spreading. The virus keeps doing what viruses do and what we've recognized for 100 years. Viruses do. But it seems like everything that didn't work, well, we just need to do it harder. We need to try more. And and where does that kind of thinking come from? Well, I'll give you a clue. It, it comes from people in government positions like Dr. Anthony Fauci who believe their own press releases. I want to play a little audio clip for you here. This is from an interview with Face the Nation. I picked this one up off Twitter. And, you know, this, this reporter is asking Dr. Fauci, you know, well, what about these, uh, what about senators like Rand Paul or Ted Cruz who called for you to step down or maybe even be prosecuted? Fauci did lie, by the way. It's very clear he lied when he was testifying before the Senate um, not so long ago about gain-of-function research at the Wuhan labs. But listen to his response and tell me that, uh, hey, we're in good hands. Here's what he had to say. Why do you feel so strongly uh, about that, about staying on the job when you become, I mean, you were personally, not just rhetorically, threatened your security, your safety, your family. Yeah. How did you deal with that? I dealt with it by focusing on what my job is. From the time that I went into medicine to the right now where I am at my age, my job has been totally focused on doing what I can with the talents and the influence I have to make scientific advances to protect the health of the American public. So anybody who spends lies and threatens and all that theater that goes on 
with some of the investigations and the congressional committees and the Rand Pauls and all that other nonsense. That's noise, Margaret. That's noise. I know what my job is. Senator Cruz told the attorney general you should be prosecuted. Yeah. <laughs> I have to laugh at that. <laughs> I should be prosecuted. What happened on January 6th, Senator? <laughs> Do you think that this is about making you a scapegoat to deflect from President Trump? Of course. You have to be asleep not to figure that one out. Well, there are a lot of Republican senators uh, taking aim at this. I mean, That's okay. I'm just going to do my job. And I'm going to be saving lives, and they're going to be lying. It seems another layer of danger to play politics around matters of life and death. Right, exactly. Exactly. And to me, that's, that's unbelievably bad, because all I want to do is save people's lives. I mean... Anybody who's looking at this carefully realizes that there's a distinct anti-science flavor to this. So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there. So it's easy to criticize. But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. That's dangerous. To me, that's more dangerous than the slings and the arrows that get thrown at me. And if you damage science, you are doing something very detrimental to society long after I leave. Wow. I represent science. I am the Senate. (laughs) The emperor proclaims as uh, he gets ready to take over in Star Wars. I mean, come on. Science is a decentralized, self-regulating process for legitimizing belief but it consists of observations, hypotheses, experimentation, open-ended public adjudication, and nothing is ever settled, except that a general consensus may form around a most likely answer. I am the science, and when when they are attacking the science, they are attacking me, they are attacking the science. Now, the sad thing is there are people who are, you know, hanging on every one of Dr. Fauci's words. Oh, yes, he's just, he's just trying to save lives. Really? And, and by controlling your life, he's, he's saving your life? When we come back, we'll talk about how the government's currently turning up the pressure in a last-ditch effort to salvage the COVID narrative, which is crumbling. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. One of my great sponsors. You can find a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And look, the the necessity of stocking up on food storage and uh, preparedness supplies, it's as strong today as it ever was. Uh, Maybe some people feel a little stronger pull than they've felt in the past. Well, I want you to consider doing this through lifesavingfood.com. And one of the reasons is, yes, they are a sponsor. It, uh, it benefits them when my audience responds and, and uh, does business with them. But let me, show, let me tell you about a way that they're going to show some love to you, and that is a 25% discount if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. 
Try to make it as simple as possible. That 25% discount, that's steep. That's a that's a very substantial savings, better than you would get if you went to ReadyWise Foods themselves. So please take advantage of it. Again, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I would encourage you to take a look. Decide if, if you need to bolster your existing food storage program or maybe get started on one. All right, having said that, let's talk about what is happening <clears throat> in the effort to salvage the crumbling COVID-19 narrative. I don't know about you, but as I've looked around, I have uh, had this sense that, hey, for the most part, the world is looking fairly normal. You still encounter masks out in public, not a lot, but you see people who, who consider themselves to be vulnerable wearing masks, and that's fine. That is, you know, I don't see any need to stand there and ridicule them or tell them you're wrong. But the government is cranking up the pressure. And I think we have reached the point that where, where a lot of people, and I'm talking, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking, you know, the tinfoil hat crowd here, but um, just average people recognize that if, if I'm going to hang on to any semblance of my autonomy, my liberty, I'm going to have to learn to be civilly disobedient. And that's a scary prospect. If you've never done civil disobedience before, wow, people might think badly. They might call me names. They, they, they might accuse me of having bad motives. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> that's, that's just how it is. There's a great article on lourockwell.com. This was published over the weekend. When resistance becomes duty. Now, I want to make something really clear before I share this with you. I'm not telling you that you better be part of the resistance. That's something that's going to have to come from your heart. It can't just be, you know, me blowing the trumpet here and saying, everybody, let's assemble and go be civilly disobedient. But I'm very confident there are people within the sound of my voice who have had that that spark of recognition in their lives and in their heart that says, hey, you need to stand up. You, you can see that this isn't right. Those are the people I'm speaking to. So if, if this is making you too uncomfortable, you have my permission to, uh, you know, utterly reject whatever I'm saying. I, I don't want to force this on you, and I don't want to browbeat you into submission. But for those who feel that pull, that calling, if you will, that uh, you need to stand up, you need to be true. You need to be a source of light and example in a world where people's courage and their hearts are failing them. Some cases, literally, you know, myocarditis and stuff. Anyway, here's what Milos Matusek has to say about when resistance becomes duty. He says Machiavelli recommended that the strategic sovereign was to commit atrocities right at the beginning of his rule. But democracies know an even better time. Chancellor Merkel who's about to resign from office soon, may commit the potentially greatest cruelty of her term in a kind of managerial capacity in the zombie phase of her rule. She's just announced that life for the unvaccinated is about to become even more unpleasant very soon. Now, what does that even mean at this point? Curfews, lockdowns for the unvaccinated, the marking of unvaccinated people? Whatever it is. It's likely to be the completion of the quasi-ghettoization of within the vaccination apartheid state. Now, in Orwell's 1984, anything but work was forbidden. 
the 2G rule for the workplace or the de facto vaccine mandate implied by the 3G rule due to a daily required tests at one's own expense moves us ever so closer to Orwell's vision of the world. Now, he says desperation is at the root of the imminent state atrocity. So this is something to keep in mind. These governments that are locking down, these governments that are doubling down on the idea that, well, what the mask mandates and all the travel restrictions and the societal lockdowns, they didn't work before. But if we just do them harder, they've got to work this time. They can't risk being seen as wrong. And you can kind of understand that, right? It's if if the citizen, the citizenry rather, sees us as as having been wrong or having utterly failed, why they might lose confidence in us. You think? And they really can't stand to lose that confidence. So again, going back to uh, Milos Matsushek's article, he says, we are at the height of madness regarding anti-pandemic policies. So these, these tactics that are being used, they are not coming from a position of strength and confidence that, yes, we know what we're doing, and we just have to calmly, you know, do this, and we're going to get through it. This is desperation. He says, the narrative of the worst pandemic in 100 years, for which the unvaccinated are now being blamed, is falling to pieces bit by bit. And a collective act of cruelty inflicted upon a minority and tolerated by the silent majority appears to be the final linchpin holding together a flimsy narrative consisting of a jumble of data, propaganda, and fear-mongering. From the standpoint of the political class, this is all too understandable, as everything remotely associated with logic is currently exploding in its face. And he gives a brief summary that uh, should establish this pretty well. For instance, the number of cases and ICU admission rates are higher today than they were a year ago. Now, do you remember a year ago the vaccination rate was zero? Today it is over 70%, or is it 80%? See, we can't even establish that beyond doubt. And it's finally dawning on even the last one of us. Either the vaccinations aren't working or the population is being vaccinated into the next wave. Looking at the data from other countries such as Israel, the latter was foreseeable months ago as the number of cases went through the roof following mass vaccinations in these countries. The so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated is the latest fairy tale emanating from Spahn's lie factory and has been scientifically refuted. It's nothing but government propaganda of the shabbiest kind and has destroyed the last shred of credibility of a political class that's almost entirely detached from reality. The blatant adoption of the Soviet communication strategy under Stalin is nothing short of unbelievable. Back then, calamities such as supply shortages were equally ascribed to saboteurs and never to the poor planning of a political caste ideologically hovering above all material things. Here's another example. How exaggerated the panic-inducing numbers are and have been has recently been shown by the magazine Multipolar, which sifted through the billing data of health insurance companies. Now, accordingly, only around half the patients officially treated for corona were in the hospital primarily due to corona. But that's not all. The billing data also reveals further controversial findings. Compared to 2019, the number of cases requiring intensive care that are not linked to acute respiratory diseases, especially strokes, cancer, and heart attacks, increased significantly after the first lockdown. This points to the consequences of postponed treatments and delayed checkups resulting from the first lockdown. 
Also, the brazen manner in which Pfizer falsified COVID vaccine trial data has just been leaked to the the prestigious British medical journal by a whistleblower. Whoops. Apparently, the company couldn't even ensure the proper storing temperature of vaccines used during the trial. Now, there's no other way to put it. The pharmaceutical industry has taken the population hostage and turned everyone into guinea pigs, at least of sorts, (laughs) aided by politics and media. But what kind of criticism can be expected from a media industry which is entirely under the spell of Big Pharma anyway? Are you starting to get the picture? We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. There is a link to it in my show notes. Just go to thebrianheidshow.com and there you can revel in wrong think to your heart's content. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing an article here from Milos Matuszek. I'm probably butchering this guy's name, but what a great article about when resistance becomes duty. I'm sure most of us did not ever aspire to become, you know, uh, people who engage in civil disobedience. I don't think any of us ever aspired to become activists of any sort. But somewhere along the course of life, as you become aware of what matters and you become aware of a a certain sense of duty that you have when you have uh, when you've reached the truth or you've at least committed to the truth. This is where we find ourselves standing today. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I don't uh, I don't blame people for, you know, just wanting I just want to find a quiet place to sit down and just, I don't want to be a part of this. I get it. But we don't just have ourselves to think about in this case, do we? I'm thinking about the world that my kids and my grandkids are going to inherit and uh, you know, I I would gladly have taken the hit for them. But unfortunately, you know, <laughs> it's it, it looks like they're going to have their share of heavy lifting to do. So I want to prepare them as best I can. And I'm speaking to those people who likewise recognize that uh, the stakes are very real here. In fact, if, if I can do this without losing too many people, the stakes here are not just, you know, of, of a temporal nature. It's not just a matter of, well, you know, we just got to get things right politically and vote in the right people will have this made. I think there's eternal significance to this in that I think that what we are seeing is part of a larger eternal war between light and dark. And at the, at the center of that war is the question, will man be free? Now, I won't go into any more detail than that, but for some people that, uh, that should give us some perspective. The names and faces change, right? But throughout human history, the dynamic has always been the same, and it always seems to come back to that question. Should you be able to choose, must you be forced, lest somebody make a mistake? Now, in this article, we've had several different uh, examples of how the pandemic narrative has fallen apart. Here's another one. So far, the pandemic narrative has fed on the slavish obedience of a core of pro-government vax influencers. And the fact that uh, this circle the wagons mentality is now falling apart can actually be considered as the worst case scenario for the government and probably is the reason for the accelerated tightening of measures. 
the brutal public crackdown and quasi-execution of footballer and vaccine hesitator Joshua Kimmich was supposed to be a shot across the bow aimed at other prominent critics to deter them from questioning the narrative. Now, Kimmich is one of the initiators of the We Kick Corona campaign and was even mentioned in the panic paper of the Federal Ministry of the Interior. I believe this is talking about Germany here. The shot backfired totally. Even Richard David Precht, a no-TV philosopher and best-selling author, came to Kimmich's aid and condemned the ongoing witch hunt, referring to the mRNA vaccines as genetic engineering. In a podcast with Marcus Lanz, just as Kimmich, he pointed to the lack of long-term studies and spoke out against vaccinating children with COVID vaccines. Now, this U-turn is surprising. In his book, Uber de Flicht, On Duty, Precht underlined the importance of the citizen's duty to obey the welfare state, hereby offending many people himself. But now he, too, is being reprimanded in an insulting manner, even torn apart by the media for his failing loyalty towards the government. The journalist Norbert Haring speaks of an unprecedented reckoning instigated by the Spiegel, It's the same old game with the same monotonous vocabulary. Anyone who refuses to toe the line is defamed. Even though it's barely visible to the outside world, it's been rumbling in the media for a long time. The uh, SWR employee, Ole Sambrax, who published a statement containing all of his skeptical questions in the magazine Multipolar, I can't go on like this, was the name of his article, has since been fired. The code of omerta in the media cannot be sustained for long. By now, everyone knows that they have endorsed a machine of systemic disinformation at the expense of the citizen. All media producers and journalists who want to maintain a last shred of credibility will have to draw the appropriate consequences. So let's talk about how resistance becomes duty. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty, is a quote allegedly attributed to Bertolt Brecht. Now, most likely the pandemic will only end as soon as the fear of a totalitarian public as as the fear as soon as the fear of a totalitarian public health dictatorship, which is the long-standing subliminal agenda becoming increasingly clear, becomes uh, outweighs rather the fear of the virus or personal disadvantages. Okay, this is where I am today. I am much more concerned with the medical totalitarianism that I see taking hold than I am with a virus which while deadly to some, mercifully does not kill the vast majority of people who contract it. I think that there's there's no, uh, I don't think there's any shame in, in, in seeing that. But some people would say, well, that's just, you know, lunacy. The author here says resistance against injustice, including legal injustice, doesn't require a special permit. He says, as soon as the state begins to act in a tyrannical manner, the bond of fundamental democratic loyalty is broken. In a highly recommendable rant, the Romanian European Union parliamentarian Christian Terrace claimed that tyranny is easy to recognize, alluding to the heavily redacted contracts between the EU Commission and the vaccine manufacturers. Now, if the vaccine, or the government rather, he says, knows everything about you, it's tyranny. But if you know everything about the government, that's democracy. So there may be, all, but there may be a lot more of us. He's saying than than we may assume. People who are waking up to this. Also, the state is not superior to the individual. It is made up from the sum of individuals. As soon as the state attempts to break the individual in order to preserve itself as a whole, it betrays the initial idea of the state. 
It breaches the social contract and betrays its only contractual partner, the citizen. So with the obedient nature of Germans in mind, our constitutional fathers created a legal norm for this kind of essential resistance, which is to be found in paragraph 4 of Article 20 of the Federal Constitution. Again, he's talking Germany. However, with no respective case law existing as of yet. So isn't it high time to bring this norm to life? And Milos Machucek says, look, with what right does the state expect to impose taxes on its citizens who've been harassed, lied to, and scammed with experimental vaccines? With what right do public service broadcasters expect to collect compulsory fees in exchange for the disinformation they're circulating? Isn't it time to finally explore the limits of the legal and extra-legal emergency laws placed at the disposal of citizens to defend themselves against the state? What else needs to happen? He says intelligent resistance begins with ceasing to go along with any of this and making it clearly visible and documenting it. He references a couple of campaigns. I, I would try to pronounce them, but uh, this is these are like 25-cent German words. Uh, they are just the tip of an iceberg of resistance with which politics is about to collide. The numerous examples of people standing up for their beliefs in everyday life are even more important. Everyone can set an example within the realms of their possibilities, whether it's merely a banner hanging from the balcony or a candle in the window. In his essay on civil disobedience, Henry David Thoreau illustrated what it is all about. The machine can only be stopped when a large amount of individuals generates enough friction and stops condoning injustice, which it recognizes as such and despises fundamentally. A system of values manifests itself by demanding a price and not being available for free. A change of the current system is impossible without the individual taking risks, making a sacrifice, or accepting noticeable disadvantages. But he says the magic of resistance begins to take effect when resistance becomes visible and like-minded people recognize each other. And he says some of us have taken the first step on this path. Join us. Now, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, he's talking about Germany and everything's much different there. This is something that's playing out in virtually every developed nation around the world right now. And it's just a matter of time before officials here in the U.S. start to really crank down to, again, assert that control. You know, I mean, think about what Dr. Fauci was saying in that first segment. I am the science. If you question me, you are questioning sciences. People are dying. This is a life and death matter. Of course, when it's a life and death matter... Why, government can justify just about any response. How far would they go? I don't think we want to know. But I do agree with Milos Matuchek, who says, you know, if, if you're not, if, if whatever system of values you are a part of isn't demanding a price, it's probably not a very worthwhile system. You've got to be willing to take individual risks. You've got to be willing to suffer inconvenience or make a sacrifice. And frankly, there's a lot of people that have walked away from their jobs rather than knuckle under to what is being demanded of them. I kind of like the idea of the candle in the window, too. I saw a very powerful picture from 1932 Germany of a menorah in the window right across the street from Nazi Party headquarters. That took guts. We need to have guts as well. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'd like to encourage you to please visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show a little bit of love for my sponsors. Check out the different articles that are linked there. You'll even find resources for wrong thinkers where if you want to just bypass the middleman and just uh, get these updates sent to your email inbox, this is a good way to do it. I'll give you some, some great information sources. What you do with that information, that's up to you. I'm not telling you you have to believe it. If you click on this, you're agreeing that you're going to believe me no matter what I say. There is an article there that I think would be well worth your time. This is from the Brownstone Institute. And where right now we have so many of the world's leaders mashing down on the fear button just as hard as they can. I think that uh, this may be one of the best articles that you read. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty lengthy article. You know how some articles they'll list, hey, this article should take about five minutes to read. This one takes about 27 minutes. And I assume that's if you're a pretty quick reader. But the idea is that our job, you and me, as sources of truth and light, is to speak the truth with love for the sake of those people who are still reachable. And Paris Williams, in writing about uh, this, this uh, overwhelming topic of how do we do that, describes how love rather than fear, is what is going to get us through this crisis. Very highly recommended article, lots of great information, so that when you do try to speak the truth, you have, you know, some factual data to share with those who are seeking the truth. But again, if, if we're not doing what we're doing out of a sense of love and with patience and with long-suffering, if, if we're doing it out of a sense of ridicule and superiority to you stupid sheep, we're doing it wrong. This, this ain't about, you know, look how much better, look how much smarter I am than you. Biff, Tad, look at these rubes. Look at what they believe. <laughs> Everybody at the country club would laugh. If we're going to lead out, we got to lead out the right way. That's going to require a little bit of humility. Okay, a lot of humility. So I want to shift gears here. There's, there's another article that, uh, that I found that I thought was really interesting, considering how many people have, have been feeling the pressure from work about, you know, you get the vaccine or you are fired. And as sad as it is to see those workers being pushed into unemployment for their refusal to bow to the demands of the political class, we need to remember that, you know, it's not a matter of Americans hating work so much as they hate the workplace for what it's becoming. This is from Austin Stone, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. He says, news outlets are calling it a great resignation. Millions of able-bodied Americans refusing to work. This phenomenon, so alien to America's ethos as a leader in production and innovation, has authorities scratching their heads and desperately seeking answers. Now, our nation was founded with an entrepreneurial mentality. The earliest colonists and later pioneers built beachheads from nothing in New England and tamed the western wilds. Both devout Puritan Calvinists and secular types, exemplified by Benjamin Franklin, prized values like punctuality and industriousness either as articles of faith or good sense. America itself was a startup whose value was its human capital and sweat and sometimes blood equity. 
Over the centuries, Americans have emphasized work culture and made it busier and more productive than any other nation, according to a multi-level analysis released in 2020, just before the pandemic. Indeed, our European friends think we work too hard. But most Americans have historically expressed satisfaction with their work conditions, their hours, their workload. That's according to Gallup polling. That is, until now. Labor experts are debating the cause of the great resignation brewing in America's workforce because it's an extraordinary phenomenon in economic terms. There are plenty of jobs. In fact, employers are desperate. But millions of Americans have stopped showing up. Specialists have attempted to diagnose this malady before it metastasizes into an irreversible economic crisis. Free market capitalists point to the pandemic unemployment expansions and stimulus payments that incentivized workers to either quit or get themselves fired and offered Americans who live month to month more financial flexibility to work less. And he says they're correct, despite best intentions, when people can make more from unemployment than a job, we're inviting economic underperformance. But the stimulus and federal employment bonus have now ended, and the Great Resignation is accelerating. Left-leaning pundits have tried to call the Great Resignation a symptom symptom of labor militancy, pointing to the strikes and walkouts that have repeatedly cropped up in several industries. However, many of these rowdy rebellions have been grassroots resistance to vaccine mandates and lingering COVID restrictions. Union leaders have been the tip of the spear for enforcing these directives, even penalizing and coercing their own members who appeal to them for help. So the Great Resignation is not just a story of economic policy incentives or Marxist analysis or even exasperation with rude and difficult customers. It's not a matter of attitude adjustment, as if Americans were adopting the Chinese practice of Tang Ping, lying down, the new trend of young people giving up trying to achieve or accomplish anything. Quietest philosophy, at least when it comes to professional occupation, is foreign to the American culture of liberty and self-determination. Solving the mystery of the great resignation phenomenon is not difficult. We must pay attention to who is resigning, what kind of workers, and then put ourselves in their shoes. The laptop class, John Tierney's term for college-educated workers whose workday is largely computerized, is not resigning. Graphic designers, software developers, and an assorted cohort of spreadsheet surfers and keyboard warriors have not been the primary driver of unemployment during or after the pandemic. Most companies and employees adapted to remote work, a development that was long overdue given the technology available. Now, the only office employers struggling to fill cubicles are those who still think cubicles are the future. The workers resigning are those most brutally impacted by policy over the last year and a half. They wear uniforms, or at least boots, and most of their customers are strangers. Police officers, airline pilots, healthcare workers, builders, repairmen. We used to call them frontline heroes and essential employees. Now we oppress them with litanies of COVID mandates in their workplace. And don't forget about the workers in retail and restaurants who've always lived just above the poverty line. At a time of unprecedented economic instability, they don't see much difference between their paltry wage and welfare, with poverty even being preferable to an exploitative or abusive workplace. So the Great Resignation is a blue-collar movement. Data from the Department of Labor and privately conducted surveys bear this out. In short, the backbone of America, the ones who keep the country up and running, are walking off the job, and we all know why. 
We've all walked into a restaurant or grocery store where masks are not required for customers, but corporate office wants all employees to wear them. We've all had a friend or relative whose job has been threatened by public or private sector vaccine mandates. We've watched the disunity over COVID restrictions split churches and tear school districts apart, so why should we be surprised if it involves or demotivates workers? Working in these conditions comes at a price, and for blue-collar jobs especially, that price is not justified by the salary. Workers in these jobs value security, job security that is, schedule regularity, and constancy of tasks. A job to be proud of, but not to prioritize over values, free time, or personal dignity. So as a country, we're shackling our own economy by forcing these workers to make the choice between their livelihood and their dignity or autonomy. We need blue-collar workers. Their ingenuity, energy, and constancy are what built this country. And despite our current crisis, can now build it back. Many progressive policies have already targeted the industries that are crucial to the national infrastructure, like manufacturing or oil and gas. More politically driven regulations might be the straw that breaks the economy's back. Now, Austin Stone says, unfortunately, our national disunity over COVID and a host of other issues won't be going away anytime soon. It's already escalated into a conflict with inevitable winners and losers. We can't reform government, public sector unions, schools, or corporations overnight. But we can build alternative institutions and parallel economies that create opportunities for hardworking Americans who won't be pushed around. We can return to an economy where businesses focus on business, not irrelevant agendas using corporations as a vehicle for politics. He says the American entrepreneur of the future must rally the workers being squeezed by these coercive policies. Their productivity and ingenuity, currently subdued by short-sighted agendas, may be America's greatest untapped resource. You know what? I'm confident that there are entrepreneurs out there who recognize this and, as we speak, are in the process of creating whatever is going to come next. I sincerely hope that you're one of those entrepreneurs, or at least one of those people who's willing to step up and support those entrepreneurs. You know, innovation is a good thing. Sometimes it's, you know, necessary. This is one of those times. So we don't tend to innovate when things are just going swimmingly, do we? It's usually when things get tough. Well, things are tough. So let's see what kind of a positive turn we can can make out of this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. My job is not to tell you what to think. I have not mistaken myself for the oracle who will only, you know, bring you truth from on high. Nope. I'm just an average guy with a love of truth and light and uh, and a handy little platform from which to speak it. So 
You don't have to believe whatever I say, but I'm going to try to share with you things that will help you become more aware of who you are, what you stand for, what is happening in the world around us, as opposed to simply who or what you should be against. My red meat throwing phase was fun while it lasted, but I don't think it really accomplished that much good. I would much rather inspire people to stand up on their own feet, think for themselves as clearly and independently as they possibly can, and eventually to outgrow me and move along their own path, creating leaders along the way as they go. So that's kind of how I define success. Is it's not about creating more followers. It's about creating more leaders. I think you are one of those people who, for whatever reason, will be leading out. So I look forward to the day when you have outgrown me and uh, had, have moved further along in your own path. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, HSLAmmo.com. Actually, we'll have Spencer Worthington joining me on the show tomorrow. And uh, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com. Links to all of them can be found in the show notes. So I don't know if it's hard to make sense of the bigger picture, but uh, I, I came across an essay that Paul Rosenberg shared about two and a half, no, make that five and a half years ago, about the rape of the West. And that's kind of a, you know, a provocative title. But when you hear what he has to say, I think you'll find his observations have held up very well over the last five years and have offered some real insight into why our so-called leaders are so good at bypassing morality. Now, he actually starts out here with, uh, with a quote from Niccolo Machiavelli. Everyone sees what you appear to be. Few really know what you are. So when it comes to this title, The Rape of the West, Paul Rosenberg says, look, I wanted to find a less ugly title for this article, but I couldn't find one that still conveyed the depth of the crimes that are underway. Now, and keep in mind, this was five and a half years ago he wrote this. So he says, apologies where they are due. He says, I'm going to give you an overview of what is going on and an outline of how the schemes work. And I'm not going to prove everything I write with citations and math. That's an important thing to do. But he says, today I'll pass. If you doubt anything I write here, he asks, please do your own research. Find the facts, question them, compare them, and forge your own opinions. So here's what's happening. He says, right now, the people who can fairly be called the ruling elite are bleeding the West dry. And many of them are fully aware of what they're doing. Others are simply doing what works and hiding behind slogans like, it's all legal, that help them bypass morality. Now, he says, the people that are doing this rather urgently at the moment are doing so because the financial system is poised for a collapse. The system has been propped up with many trillions of dollars, but the debts within it will never be repaid. Once the reality of that can no longer be evaded, the hypnotic confidence people have in the system will break. So at this moment, and again, he's talking June of 2016, Europe and Japan are closer to the precipice than North America. That means large capital flows are coming into the U.S. and Canada that drives up the prices of property, stocks, bonds, and other things. At some point, however, even the last to crash will indeed fail. And at that point, fear will spike to astonishing levels and a new game will be instituted, will have to be instituted. 
This is long before any of us had ever heard the phrase, the Great Reset. So keep that in mind. Here's the debt swindle. He says, imagine that you had this deal. You get a slice of every dollar created. You get to set the key interest rates. You are authorized to manipulate securities markets. You get to lend out many, many multiples of the money you have. And you can do all of this with complete government-enforced anonymity. Now, I know some of you are nodding their, your heads and going, hey, that's, that's the Federal Reserve. Absolutely. He says, that's the position that the central bankers occupy. And Paul Rosenberg says, I'm not embellishing. Can you name the, shell, the shareholders rather of the Federal Reserve banks? Now, he says, ask yourself a question. What do you think these people are doing with this? That ability to get a slice of every dollar created, to set the key interest rates, to manipulate the securities markets, to lend out many multiples of the money they have, and to do it all with government-enforced anonymity. He says, I'll allow you to conduct your own thought experiments. But he says, also, please understand that when debts are not repaid, reserves fall, and many times that many dollars, which are based on reserves, vanish with them. So picture this as fractional reserve banking running in reverse. Fewer dollars will be chasing the same amount of goods. Now think of the 1930s and consider this crucial fact. Deflation transfers assets from borrowers to lenders. So if your income falls from $70,000 to $40,000, you're not going to be hurt buying food. Those prices will fall too. But your fixed mortgage will become unpayable. And when you fail to pay, the bank takes ownership of your house. Now please add this to the mix. The bank did not loan you the deposits of your friends and neighbors. The bank simply made up your mortgage loan by entering a number on a line. Think about that. The mortgage you're slaving to pay back was created from nothing with a keystroke. So to sum this up, and he says, yes, I'm simplifying, which isn't entirely fair. It costs the banks next to nothing to create loans. And when people can't pay the banks end up owning their houses or factories or cars outright. Now, again, he says, apply your own thoughts here. Now, the next level down from the central banks is occupied by the big corporations and institutions. These outfits operate through politics rather than banking. To put it briefly, they purchase politicians who write laws and regulations that secure monopoly positions for them. From those protected positions, they reap huge fortunes from the populace who have no other options. Think of Obamacare. Think of the university system. If you want medical treatment, you have to use the system. If you want a diploma, you can't be hired for most decent jobs without one. You have no options. You will pay these outfits whatever they ask, and you'll jump through whatever hoops they tell you to jump through. All other choices are forbidden under force of laws, laws that they have purchased. Look at the price of medical care and higher education these days. They're bleeding you dry precisely because you have nowhere else to go. He says, pay attention to this election cycle. How many billions of dollars will be raised for campaigns? These are simply payoffs. Every major donor will expect favors for their donations. That's the simple fact. All else is dreaming. Bribery is legal these days, cloaked in regulation to cover its sin. The capital cities of the West are what P.J. O'Rourke rightly called parliaments of whores. Again, 
political donors are bribing politicians to gain monopoly positions. They are using those to bleed you dry, and so long as you keep behaving, or obeying, rather, (laughs) same thing, they have absolutely no reason to change. Now, he says, at the present moment, Joe and Jane Average are keeping their heads down, making no waves, avoiding shame, hoping to ride out the insanity. After all, they were taught that democracy is magic, a system that will always ride itself no matter what. So basically, these decent people sit quietly, waiting for magic to appear, murmuring democracy, democracy, as they're robbed day by day. And he also points out terror is the greatest tool of compliance in modern times, maybe ever. Westerners are glued to terror delivery systems like network television, day and night, soaking it all in and all buying the same old political line, we must do more. So here's the choice. He points out that without fear-driven compliance, the system would crack. That's simply the way things are. And if Joe and Jane Average were confident and rational, they would demand better for themselves and their children. So Paul Rosenberg says, look, I've laid things out as best I can in brief. It's now your job to check them and see if they're true. Then it's your job to start acting on your conclusions. Now, he says, I think I may write a bit about doing in the next few weeks, but that post will merely be my suggestions. The bottom line is you must decide to act or to avoid acting on your own. No one can act for you, and anyone who offers you what he calls an easy path to action is just another politician. You alone must choose. You alone must face the consequences. There is no easy way. Sorry, that had a little bit of hard truth there at the end, didn't it? But I think it's truth nonetheless. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want you to know how much I appreciate the opportunity to get together with you each day and to share the best information that I can find. And I don't want to sound like I'm a nerd who has no life, but uh, that's pretty much the fact. I, I am a nerd, and, and my life consists of, of uh, scouring the interwebs for, for the best information that I can find. I look for things that are principled, that are nonpartisan, and that hopefully provide some insight into what's happening and, and key insights that you're not getting through, either legacy media sources or more sensationalized Sources, you know, of a particular flavor of conservatism or libertarianism. You know, um, I'm convinced you can find truth from just about any source. But above all, you and I have to be the kind of people who think deeply and independently enough and clearly enough about things that we can help uh, separate the fact from fiction and, and become our own truth detectors. So, with that in mind, just wanted to touch on this uh, reinstatement of travel bans and mask mandates over the latest virant variant. Very strong indicator that uh, you and I still are not in control of our own lives. Got a great article here from Spiked Online. This is from Tom Slater, who's the editor of Spiked. We must reject this COVID safetyism. 
subtitle, A Free Society Cannot Live on Tenterhooks Forever. This is uh, out of the UK, so I'm going to have to look up what tenterhooks are. I'm, I'm not familiar with that term. But here's what uh, Tom Slater has to say. He says, a new COVID variant, another dreadful Downing Street press conference, more COVID restrictions, Boris Johnson refusing to rule anything out, journalists demanding to know why martial law hasn't been declared yet. He says Saturday night was almost nostalgic in the worst possible way. In England, from Tuesday, face masks will be mandatory again in shops and on public transport. Several southern African nations have been red-listed, and tighter testing and isolation rules for all international travel will soon be brought in following the discovery of the Omicron COVID variant. At a stroke, those faint but mounting hopes that we, in Britain at least, were edging our way out of this nightmare were dashed. Not because of the concrete threat this new variant poses, but because our political and media elites simply cannot let this crisis go. Now, he says there's so much we don't know about this variant. Evidence from South Africa, where it was first detected, points toward it being highly transmissible. Analysis of testing samples suggests 90% of recent cases in Gauteng province, which includes Pretoria and Johannesburg, may have been caused by it. But there are also concerns that Omicron might evade the protection of vaccines to a degree because of its 32 mutations in the spike protein the bit of the virus that attaches to human cells, and the bit of the virus the vaccines are designed to target. But he says we still can't say anything for certain. Various experts and clinicians are even urging calm. Callum Semple, a microbiologist and SAGE member, says some of his colleagues are hugely overstating the situation and that vaccines are still likely to protect you from severe disease. The variant may be even less virulent than previous ones, something experts suspected would happen over time. Dr. Angelique Coetzee, the South African doctor who first spotted Omicron, told the BBC yesterday that her patients so far have had extremely mild symptoms and agreed that the UK was panicking unnecessarily. Well, Tom Slater says time will tell. The virus has surprised us before, of course, but this is not March 2020 or even Christmas 2020. However much the siren calls to save Christmas by bringing in more miserable measures might put us in mind of last year's grim, drafty, socially distanced Yuletide. He says more than 90% of the UK population have COVID antibodies, either through injection or infection. The booster program is moving swiftly down the age groups and keeping hospitalizations and deaths in check. A new strain we know little about shouldn't rattle us this much. Now, he points out some of the measures announced this week are theatrical at best. Even those who support mask wearing will concede it's only marginally effective. And why masks are apparently essential in supermarkets and on buses but not in pubs or restaurants, well, that remains a bit of a mystery. But the government is still clearly willing to mandate and dictate and reorganize social life at a moment's notice, if only to be seen as doing something. And this will put the wind at the backs of forever lockdowners now demanding more restrictions with fetishistic relish. When the first lockdown was brought in, it was on the understanding that this was a temporary measure taken under extraordinary and uncertain circumstances. Well, the third, and we hope final, national lockdown was supposed to buy us all time so that all the vulnerable could be jabbed amid soaring hospitalizations and deaths. 
Tom Slater says that restrictions are creeping in again now to tame a variant we know little about of a virus we now have several safe and effective vaccines against in a country where COVID deaths and hospitalizations are actually falling suggests COVID safetyism has become an end in itself. Now, he says COVID isn't going anywhere. There will always be new variants. So either we, we remain on tenterhooks like this forever, or we fight to go back to being something like the society we were just two years ago, in which civil liberties were not considered the property of the government. A mask mandate and tighter travel rules may not be a lockdown, but they are a reminder that all these months into this pandemic, we are still not in control of our own lives and that the management of even unknown risks is now justification for drastic government interference. He says a free society simply cannot function like this. If all this goes on much longer, we will know that we become a very different kind of society altogether, one in which we can be pushed around forever for our own good. Enough. I think that's a pretty clear and brilliant way of putting it. If we don't put our foot down at some point and say, you know what, it stops here. We're just going to find ourselves pushed around by the Dr. Fauci's of the world and, and his enablers as far as we can see into the future. Now, it's sad to me that uh, there are some people, though, who, you know, they find Dr. Fauci very endearing. My mom is one of those people. I, man, I love my mom. You know, I was talking with her just last night, and she was talking about, uh, well, you know, I don't, I don't know very much. I just watch the news, and, the, you know, I see what the news is. She reads the newspaper, and she watches the television news, and, you know, I, I struggle with, is, is there a nice way to say that's the problem? <laughs> it's your, your information sources are, are feeding you fear and feeding you this hype and this sensationalism and, oh, this is so terrible, and, oh, man, you know, the people that are dying. Now, my mom is in her 80s. So it's not uh, it's not too far out of you know the realm of possibility to to think well yeah people that she knows have died of COVID and you know not all of them have been in their eighties there have been some people who it takes it at a young age but typically typically there are some other circumstances or factors that play into that it could be that their immune system is completely gone due to chemotherapy or some autoimmune disease, or it could be that they have, you know, diabetes or heart disease or some other comorbidity that contributes to that. So I feel like I'm walking a little bit of a tightrope here in between. You know, I'm not telling you this is all a hoax. It's all just a big hoax and, you know, all these deaths have been faked. It's no, this is, this is not, this is not something that uh, we're, we're not dealing with an imaginary virus. I do believe that we are dealing with a man-made virus, though. Take that for what it's worth. But I also think that what we're dealing with that's, that's even more threatening than the virus are people within positions of power who are utilizing fear and uncertainty as a means of furthering their control over the population, pushing people around, telling people what to do, and doing it with the approval of their own consciences. Stuff like this doesn't end well. But the good news is you don't have to rise up and grab pitchforks and torches and fight them in the streets. You just got to find the courage to say the word no and then mean it. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to uh, give you a little encouragement here. Please check out the link in my sponsor links for GovernYourIncome.com. Now, I don't know if you know much about day trading, but uh, we're talking about a company that will train you in day trading. And this is not just, you know, day trading penny stocks on the stock market. You know, it's this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is a legitimate job that uh, you will be trading, um, doing day trading within the foreign currency exchange markets or the Forex markets. So you think about whatever happens. I mean, there are ups and downs in the various stock markets of the various nations around the world, but there always, always is a need for that foreign currency exchange. This is this is where, you know, nations are, are you know, making transactions happen. And if it's if it's something that would interest you, particularly if you're one of those people who has reached the point where you just truly want to be independent able to work from wherever you have a good internet signal, um, working for yourself, doing something that uh, that uh, requires some skill, but that you'll be trained to where you can do it very reliably, I would urge you to click on the link, check it out, get in touch with them, and, and they'll take it from there. So there's an option that you may not have known was available. Now you know. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, or you can simply go to governyourincome.com. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Glenn Greenwald's latest article. And, and I want to preface this by saying one of the biggest, or at least one of the strongest symptoms of our societal disconnect from reality can be seen in how racially obsessed individuals tend to label everyone who will not chant in unison with them as racist or white supremacist. I guess that's really the everything is white supremacy, right? Well, Glenn Greenwald, once again, is the voice of reason on such matters as he describes the cynical, dangerous weaponization of the white supremacist label by the left. He says in uh, dominant elite discourse, no evidence is needed to brand someone a white supremacist. The belief that it will produce political or personal gain suffices. And he goes back to uh, within hours of the August 25th, 2020 shootings in Kenosha, Wisconsin, not days, but hours. It was decreed as unquestioned unquestioned fact in mainstream political and media circles that the shooter, Kyle Rittenhouse, was a white supremacist. Over the next 15 months, up to and including his acquittal by a jury of his peers on all charges, this label was applied to him more times than one can count on, one can count rather, by corporate media outlets as if it were proven fact. Indeed, that Rittenhouse was a white supremacist was deemed so unquestionably true that questioning it was cast as evidence as one of, as one's, of one's own racist inclinations. You're defending a white supremacist. <laughs> Yet all along... There never was any substantial evidence, let alone convincing proof that it was true. In fact, Glenn Greenwald says the the fact is, or at least should be, an extraordinary or scandalous event. The seventeen a seventeen year old was widely vilified as a white supremacist by a union of national media and major politicians 
despite there being no evidence to support the accusation. You ever think of that? Yet it took his acquittal by a jury who heard all the evidence and testimony for parts of the corporate press to finally summon the courage, summon the courage rather, to point out that what had been gospel about Rittenhouse for the last 15 months was, in fact, utterly baseless. So a Washington Post news article was published late last week that was designed to chide both sides for exploiting the Rittenhouse case for their own purposes while failing to adhere carefully to actual facts. Ever since the shootings in Kenosha, they lamented, Kyle Rittenhouse has been a human, human canvas onto which the nation's political divisions were mapped. In attempting to set the record straight, the Post article contained this amazing admission. Quote, As conservatives coalesced around the idea of Rittenhouse as a blameless defender of law and order, many on the left just as quickly cast him as the embodiment of the far-right threat. Despite lack of evidence, hundreds of social media posts immediately pinned Rittenhouse with extremist labels. White supremacist, self-styled militia member, a boogaloo boy, seeking violent revolution or part of the misogynistic incel movement. On the left, he's become a symbol of white supremacy that isn't being held accountable in the United States today. That's according to Becca Lewis, a researcher of far-right movements and a doctoral candidate at Stanford University. You see him getting conflated with a lot of the police officers who've shot unarmed black men and with Trump himself and all these other things. On both sides, he's become a symbol much bigger than himself. Soon after the shootings, then-candidate Joe Biden told CNN's Anderson Cooper that Rittenhouse was allegedly part of a militia group in Illinois. In the next sentence, Biden segged to criticism of Trump and hate groups. Have you ever heard this president say one negative thing about white supremacists? End quote. Now, Glenn Greenwald says, valuable, though this rather belated admission is, there were two grand ironies about this passage. The first is that the Post itself was one of the newspapers which published multiple articles and columns applying this evidence-free white supremacist label to Rittenhouse. Indeed, four days after this admission by the Post's newsroom, their opinion editors published an op-ed by Robert Jones that flatly asserted the very same accusation which the Post itself says is bereft of evidence. Quote, Despite his boyish white frat boy appearance, there was plenty of evidence of Rittenhouse's deeper white supremacist orientation. End quote. In other words, Post editors approved publication of grave accusations which just four days earlier their own newsroom explicitly stated lacked evidence. Now, he says the second irony is that while the Post article lamented everyone else's carelessness with the facts of this case, the publication itself, while purporting to fact-check the rest of the world, affirmed one of the most common falsehoods, namely that Rittenhouse carried a gun across state lines. The article thus now carries this correction at the top, an earlier version of this story, and correctly stated that Kyle Rittenhouse brought his AR-15 across state lines. He has testified that he picked up the weapon from a friend's house in Wisconsin. This article has been corrected. Now, Greenwald says it continues to be staggering how media outlets which purport to explain the Rittenhouse case get caught over and over spreading utter falsehoods about the most basic facts of the case, proving they did not watch the trial or learn much about what happened beyond what they heard in passing from like-minded liberals on Twitter. There is simply no way to have paid close attention to this case, let alone have watched the trial 
and believed that he carried a gun across state lines. Yet this false assertion made it past numerous Post reporters, editors, and fact-checkers purporting to correct the record about the case. Yet again, we find that the same news outlets which love to accuse others of disinformation and want the Internet censored in the name of stopping it frequently pontificate on topics about which they know nothing without the slightest concern for whether or not it is true. Now, those who continue to condemn Rittenhouse as a white supremacist, including the author of the Post op-ed published four days after the paper concluded the accusation was baseless, typically point to his appearance at a bar in January 2021 for a photo alongside members of the Proud Boys in which he was photographed making the OK sign. That once common gesture, according to USA Today, has become a symbol used by white supremacists. Rittenhouse insists the appearance was arranged by his right-wing attorneys, Lynn Wood and John Pierce, whom he quickly fired and accused of exploiting him for fundraising purposes. And that he had no idea that the people with whom he was posing for a photo were Proud Boys members. He says, I thought they were like a bunch of construction dudes based on how they looked. Nor had he ever heard that the OK sign was a symbol of white power. Now, Greenwald says Rittenhouse's denial about this once benign gesture seems shocking to people who spend all their days drowning in highly politicized Twitter discourse, where such a claim is treated as common knowledge. But it is completely believable for the vast majority of Americans who do not. In fact, the whole point of the adolescent 4chan hoax was to convert one of the most common and benign gestures into a symbol of white power so that anyone making it would be suspect. As the New York Times recounted, the gesture has been has long been used for several purposes in sign languages and in yoga as a symbol to demonstrate inner perfection. It features in an innocuous made-you-look game. Most of all, it has commonly been used for generations to signal okay or all is well. Now, i got to hit the brakes on this because we are coming up fast on our own commercial break, but I have a link to Glenn Greenwald's article. Like most of his articles, it's a lengthy one. That's because it is well-researched. It is well-documented. But what do you think? We start calling, you know, everybody white supremacists. Well, you know, they're, they're all just a bunch of white supremacists. I think that's the, that's the sign of people who believe in word magic. If I call you this, then you magically transform into it. Now, you and I may know that's nonsense, but when an accusation is as good as a conviction, that's kind of a dangerous place to be. And in the court of public opinion, the accusation is as strong as a conviction. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to SewingQuiltingCenter.com. This is the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This, this place has been in operation since 1984. It's only changed owners twice. The new owners are uh, Teresa Alsop and her husband, uh, Eric. And uh, boy, I tell you, if you are into sewing or if you're into quilting or embroidery, and there are a surprising number of people who are. These are the folks you want to talk to. Sewing is still one of the top hobbies. It continues to grow and evolve with embroidery. And, of course, computerized quilting and sewing machines can do 
absolutely amazing things. In fact, uh, Baby Lock is a top brand and uh, leads in surgery sales worldwide. Now, look, this is a language I don't speak well. My wife would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's nodding at all of it. She understands it. Bottom line is, if you are looking for any sewing machines, embroidery machines, quilting machines, long-arm quilting machines, for instance, if you need to have your existing machines serviced, if you need fabric, superior thread, uh, cuddle material, actually, that's on sale this month. So you better act on this quickly. Uh, Cuddle is 35% off for the month of November. Great stuff for blankets. Oh, and I wanted to mention, too, on sale for Christmas, they have the Long Arms Handy Quilter. The new Moxie is as low as $4,995. They can set it up for you. They can train you as to how to use it. What a great family-owned business. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Maybe you should check it out sewingquiltingcenter.com I want to uh, go back to this article here by Glenn Greenwald and the the way that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was was labeled a white supremacist and you know he he points out how there's it's very dangerous to weaponize that term and make those kinds of accusations without any kind of explanation he says You know, that such banal and commonly held views are woefully insufficient to justify the reputation-destroying accusation that someone is a white supremacist should be too self-evident to require any explanation. But in case such an explanation is required, he says, consider that polls continually and reliably show that the pro-police sentiments of the type that caused Rittenhouse and others to be vilified by liberal elites as white supremacists are held not only by a majority of Americans, but by a majority of black and brown Americans, the very people on whose behalf these elite accusers purport to speak. For years, polling data has shown that the communities to which want at least the same level of policing, if not more, are communities primarily composed of black, brown, and poor people. And it's not hard to understand why. If the police are defunded or radically reduced, rich people will simply hire private security even more than they already employ for their homes, neighborhoods, and persons. And any resulting crime increases will fall most heavily on poorer communities. Thus, polling data reliably shows that it's these communities that either want the same level of policing or more, the exact view which, if you express, will result in guardians of elite liberal discourse declaring you to be a white supremacist. In fact, according to one Gallup poll taken in the wake of the George Floyd killing, when anti-police sentiment was at its peak, the groups that most want a greater police presence in their community are black and Latino citizens. So I want to jump ahead here and just, uh, I'm going to let you discover the rest of this article on your own. Here's what Glenn says. The media and political faction that casually and recklessly brands people as white supremacists in the way that normal people utter excuse me while navigating a large crowd have no interest in all and no interest at all rather in whether their accusation is true. They are devoted to reducing everyone whose political ideology diverges from their own to their worst possible moment, no matter how long ago it happened or how unrepresentative of their lives it is in order to derive the most ungenerous and destructive meaning from it. He says, It's a movement that is at once driven by rigorous rules, resulting in righteous decrees of sin and sweeping denunciations, yet completely bereft of the possibility of grace or redemption. And its most cherished weapon 
is accusing anyone who they decide is an enemy or even just an adversary of being a white supremacist, a white nationalist, a racist, to the point where these terms now sound more like reflexively recited daily prayer slogans than anything one needs to take seriously or which has the possibility to engage on the merits. For 15 months, it was gospel in political and media circles that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist terrorist, only for the Washington Post to suddenly announce that this claim persisted despite a lack of evidence. Huh, we don't know how that happened. But as Greenwald points out, that lack of evidence does does not matter, which is why that announcement by the Post received so little notice. Under the rules of this rotted discourse, says Glenn Greenwald, Evidence is not a requirement to affirm this accusation. All that's needed is an intuition, a tingly sensation, and above all else, the realization that hurling the accusation will yield some personal or political advantage. Like all cynical weapons, it worked for a while, but it's rapidly running out of efficacy as its manipulative usage becomes more and more visible. The term is still needed as a tool to fight actual racism. But those who most vocally and flamboyantly proclaim themselves solemnly devoted to that cause have rendered that tool virtually useless, thanks to their self-interested misuse and abuse of it. Man, that's powerful stuff. And again, I, I highly recommend Glenn Greenwald as one of those few sources out there that will tell it to you straight. Let you make up your own mind as to what does this all mean. Now, am I suggesting that Glenn Greenwald is infallible? I'm like, nope. I'm just suggesting that he actually bothers to to tell the facts without judgment. Although he's pretty good at calling out the media for a lot of its, uh, shall we say, uh, peculiar flexibility, peculiar moral flexibility when it comes to how it reports on things. And because of that... He is considered an enemy by many on the political left and and their media enablers because he won't tow the narrative line that they think needs to be towed. Interesting stuff. By the way, I'm going to include another article here. This is from Howard Hyde, no relation, who is uh, the author of Escape from Berkeley, an ex-liberal progressive socialist embraces America and doesn't apologize. He's got a great article about how when everyone's a white supremacist, no one is couple of quick excerpts here. He says the left lost control of their narrative of the white supremacist active shooter murderer Kyle Rittenhouse in the face of overwhelming factual evidence of self-defense. So leftists did what they do best or worst. They doubled down. Racism, white supremacy, no justice, no peace. Now he says the right's reaction to the left's reaction to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict ranges from ridicule to confusion. How can the left and MSNBC, CNN, and the New York Times, but I repeat myself, claim anti-black racism and white supremacy in a case in which all the principals, aggressors, victims, shooters, shot, judge, jury, prosecutors, and defense attorneys are white? Well, he says the answer is simple, and it's critical that we understand it. All of this nonsense is simply of a logical and rational piece with the left's Orwellian decades-long project to hijack the language in order to control the thoughts which are permissible, indeed possible, for the masses. We've come to the point where white is black and black is white, but it goes even beyond that. 
He says, in order to understand the left's language, the first and simplest thing you can do is to put any and all charged terms in quotes. When you hear black, you should hear black in quotation marks. And translated, likewise with white, white supremacist, and any other term the left attempts to manipulate your mind with. And he goes through definitions of these things. And it's pretty good. He says, you know, once upon a time in white America, in in America, rather, white supremacy was a real thing. In fact, it was an evil with the ability to affect non-white people's lives and hold them back from achieving their goals. But that that time mostly came to a close around August 28, 1963. Something about a speech on the Washington Mall and a high watermark for interracial relations in our great country. But racial harmony does not suit the needs of the radical Marxist left and its revolutionary plans to overthrow America. So leftists took something that all decent Americans, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, are against and expanded its definition in order to intimidate resistance into submission. Bottom line, he says, what the left calls white supremacy today is such a sick joke that it deserves nothing but ridicule and contempt. Let us therefore give thanks to God and be proud to be to all be white supremacists in quotation marks now. Again, this is Howard Hyde. Yeah, you understand. He's not he's not supporting white supremacy. He's just saying, hey, if they're gonna call you that, take the label with pride, but understand it means nothing. It's the equivalent of a, an ideological cuss word that someone is hurling at you because they have nothing of substance with which to discuss or debate. This is The Brian Hyde Show.